Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss intubation practices and adverse peri-intubation events. Thank you. I am uh, Vincenzo Russotto. I am an intensivist and a researcher working at the University Hospital San Gerardo in Monza, Italy. And uh, my research field of interest are hardware management in critical care, ventilation, sepsis. Uh, yes, uh, my name is John Maffey. I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist. I'm based at Galway University Hospitals and the National University of Ireland, uh, Galway. And my research interests are in uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome and sepsis. Great. Today we'll be discussing your article that was published in the March 2021 issue of JAMA entitled Intubation Practices and Adverse Peri-Intubation Events in Critically Ill Patients from 29 Countries. Um, we'll start with you, John. Um, maybe you could just set the stage for us. And why is it so important for us to understand uh, adverse peri-intubation events in those with critical illness? John? Uh, yes. Uh, thanks, Dominic. So, placing a patient who's critically ill on a ventilator uh, is something we do to support breathing. And it's one of the most common forms of life support we can offer to somebody in the intensive care unit. In, in order to provide the treatment uh, as clinicians, we have to perform tracheal intubation. So this is an invasive procedure where a tube is inserted uh, via the mouth directly into the windpipe. Uh, and a better knowledge and understanding of the type and the frequency of adverse events that occur during this procedure will help us uh, ultimately to find ways to reduce the risk of tracheal intubation in the critically ill. Yeah, it seems incredible that uh, we've been intubating patients uh, via the endotracheal route for over 150 years, but we still haven't uh, been able to correctly characterize uh, this issue of adverse peri-intubation events. So, Vincenzo, maybe you could go ahead and give us the motivation and rationale for your study. Um, what prompted you to go ahead and do the study? Yes, thank you, Dominique. Well, um, tracheal intubation, uh, as I said, is among the most frequent and high-risk procedure in critically ill patients. But uh, until now, information on uh, peri-intubation adverse events was available from uh, single-center studies or national-level studies, uh, while other studies included, for example, data from electronic health records. Uh, but we wanted to design a large prospective international study collecting real-life data from different geographical areas. Uh, and indeed, um, until now, um, most published studies were from uh, Europe, US, or Australia, uh, whereas in the Intube study, we included many centers also from uh, South America, India, and uh, Africa in order to make a fair representation of uh, global practice of uh, airway management in critical illness. And uh, we consider that collecting data on the incidents and types of uh, adverse events is uh, important to identify research priorities and to further investigate intervention to reduce these risks. Yeah, so the Intube study uh, was really impressive in that you um, had uh, both an international uh, 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 collection of patients um, as well as the fact that uh, you're able to look at a number of centers. So, uh, Vincenzo, maybe you could tell us what your study methods were, um, specifically what were your inclusion criteria, your exclusion criteria, and what your primary outcome is. 
Yes, Intube study was a was a large international observational prospective study uh, collecting information on uh, highway management in critical care. So we enrolled all consecutive in hospital intubation performed in adult critically ill patients. Um, in the intube study, we defined critically ill those patients with a life-threatening condition, uh, needing intubation for respiratory failure, cardiovascular collapse, or neurological impairment. Uh, we excluded patients undergoing intubation only to receive general anesthesia, patients needing intubation during cardiopulmonary resuscitation for cardiac arrest and uh, out-of-hospital intubations. Um, so in this sense, the study is different from previously published trial uh, because we included intubation performed not only in the ICU but also in the emergency department and wards. Uh, and because we wanted to focus on critical illness rather than on, uh, on the location uh, of the procedure. So centers were asked to collect intubation during a eight-week period of observation, up to the maximum number of 20 in each, in each center, uh, in order to avoid the uh, over-representation of centers with a higher workload. And uh, we collected information on uh, demographic data, clinical characteristics, uh, intubation settings, patient physiological parameters before intubations, but also details of the intubation procedures and the outcome of the intubation and status of the ICU discharge. And uh, most importantly, all information on the intubation procedure uh, and uh, on patient's parameters were collected in real time by an investigator that was not involved in the procedure. And uh, the primary outcome of the intube study was uh, a composite outcome uh, made by cardiovascular instability, severe hypoxemia, and cardiac arrest occurring within uh, 30 minutes from the start of the intubation procedure. While we have a number of secondary outcomes, uh, including incidents of aspiration of gastric contents, difficult intubation, esophageal intubation, hardway injuries, and, uh, and uh, ICU mortality. Gotcha. John, I want to pull you into this discussion. Maybe you could uh, explicitly tell us what those um, primary outcome events were, specifically in the cardiovascular and respiratory ones, because they uh, tended to drive your findings. John? Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Dominique. We we found uh, you know a high rate of, of adverse events. So we found actually that 45% of the patients that were enrolled experienced at least one life-threatening adverse event. Uh, and uh, as Vincenzo has, has said, these are uh, cardiovascular predominantly. Uh, so 40% of them uh, had a severe uh, cardiovascular instability peri-intubation. Uh, and uh, about 10%, nearly 10% suffered severe hypoxemia or very low oxygen levels. And 3% of patients in the study suffered a cardiac arrest. So we, we've always known, you know, uh, that this was a high-risk procedure. Uh, to In order to facilitate uh, tracheal intubation, uh, one has to sedate the patient deeply for the procedure, and these are critically ill and unstable patients. However, the, the, the very high levels that we found were, were a surprise to us and, and obviously a significant concern. Uh, what we found was that the patients who were at highest risk of life-threatening complications, particularly the hemodynamic ones, were those who had hemodynamic instability prior to intubation. Uh, and we found that 
successful tracheal intubation on the first attempt was one of the ways, uh, was one of the findings that was associated with a lower risk of complications. So showing us that, you know, if we are better at doing these procedures, uh, we can have, we can identify uh, that strategy and other strategies that would reduce the risk for the patients. And then specifically the cardiovascular events. So you said 40% of patients um, uh, developed uh, these uh, cardiovascular uh, instability. Um, you listed the causes as uh, a systolic blood pressure of less than 65 at least once, um, a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 for at least 30 minutes, a new or increasing vasopressor uh, requirement or requiring a fluid bolus of more than 15 moles per kilogram. So Maybe you could explain why you chose those specific variables and if there are any limitations to choosing those. John? Uh, yes. Uh, so you, we we prospectively defined uh, these the, so these different criteria. So clearly, uh, you know, a, a severe episode of hypotension, even for a relatively short period of time, could lead to very significant uh, perfusion of key organs. Uh, similarly, uh, the a systolic pressure of less than 90 for for 30 minutes again would would indicate compromised perfusion of body organs. Now, if you if you intervened quickly, uh, you you may re- reduce the timing or the length of the hemodynamic instability. But we wanted to detect that then by uh, looking at vasopressor use. And so, and and the second area we looked at was the use of a fluid bolus because these are the two most common uh, approaches taken by clinicians to try and reduce the risk or the duration of the hemodynamic instability. Got you. So to summarize, 40% had cardiac instability, 10% had respiratory issues where their stats dropped down to less than 80%, and as you said, 3% had a cardiac arrest of which 50% of those patients ended up dying. So, Vincenzo, I want to bring you back into the discussion here. So given the fact that cardiovascular instability was such a big problem, how good are we at detecting um, cardiovascular instability in patients, and what measures should we be making in the future to prevent this from happening? Well, thank you for this question because uh, probably it's uh, the key question. So we 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 probably yes the the, the most uh, important finding is that uh, we have a high incidence of uh, of cardiovascular instability and for sure patients that have, as already John said are already uh, hemodynamically unstable are at higher risk of uh, of this event. Um, probably this is uh, uh, we need to further investigate this in uh, in future study and also in a, in a sub analysis that we are working on. The key uh, intervention is uh, uh, optimization of physiological parameters before the start of the procedure. And uh, for uh, what from our data, it seems that fluid bolus is not effective uh, at uh, pre procedure optimization of hemodynamics. Uh, probably this is uh, what we can uh, further investigate in future trials is uh, the early use of vasopressor uh, that may be effective in uh, counterbalance the, the, uh, the, the effect of uh, intubation and the airway procedure in general, such as uh, positive pressure ventilation, induction agents that may be responsible for this high risk of uh, cardiovascular collapse following intubation.
Yeah, those are definitely important factors. John, um, I, I was struck in Table 3 of your paper um, that uh, a lot of patients uh, uh, received propofol. Um, uh, patients received uh, bag valve, valve mask uh, um, uh, preoxygenation, which obviously has PEEP. So maybe you could comment on these adjuncts that we use um, in preparing patients for intubation that could have a deleterious effect on the hemodynamics. Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Dominique. So, I guess you know we we've known for a long time that that uh, propofol has a, a, an adverse hemodynamic profile, uh, and yet it's the commonest drug we we use in these situations. Uh, there are drugs with better hemodynamic profiles, but they're much less used, right? Drugs like ketamine or atomidate, for example. Uh, and I guess this is an example of us using drugs that we're familiar with, right? Uh, and and then attempting to reduce their adverse uh, consequences, say, for example, by a fluid bolus. Uh, and, and what we've seen in the study is that, you know, these, these, these drugs are associated with, with higher you know, incidence of adverse hemodynamic events. So we do need to look at that. Uh, and I think one of the one of the great things about our study is that it has identified, I think, a number of different areas where we can now test different strategies. So we could test, for example, a, a drug like propofol against a drug like atomidate or ketamine uh, in in the to uh, to sedate prior to intubation, and we can test different vasopressors strategies versus fluid strategies, and and we could test different methods of pre-oxygenation, so, such as the bag mask or some of the newer uh, approaches, say, for example, using high-flow nasal cannulae. And these are all now sort of tractable questions that we can test in clinical studies. So I want to dive into this propofol issue again. Um, so, so, so you mentioned that propofol is a very commonly used drug, and it has vasodilatory effects. So if we would intubate a patient and put them on propofol and they borderline uh, hemodynamically unstable, it is almost invariable that uh, they're going to require pressors or uh, additional hemodynamic support. So my question to you then, John, is how much of this is just propofol-related versus um, because most of the patients that we end up intubating get put on propofol uh, in the first half an hour to an hour, which is kind of where you're study outcome was. Uh, are we over-inflating um, the, the hypotension due to the drugs we're using um, or the other issues? So, at the end of the, I suppose at the end of the day, uh, Dominique, propofol was used in 40% of the patients or just a little bit above that. So, it, you know, it certainly doesn't fully explain what we're seeing. Uh, it may well be an exacerbating factor. It appears to be uh, the case. But uh, this is, you know, it's a multifactorial issue, I think. You know, we have sick patients. Uh, it's, an, it's an emergent situation. Uh, you have, uh, you know, it, it's rapidly evolving in, in different spheres. And so, you know, I, I think profile is an element, but it, it's only an element uh, of what we're seeing. Uh, and I think, you know, it is, it is, it is one of the one of the nice things about the study is it is one of the things we have identified. You know, can we now frame a question ar around this uh, and, and and try to understand is is propofol, uh, you know, is, is it something we should be looking to avoid? And so, so to test that in a clinical trial is the way forward. I think. I definitely agree with you that it's a multifactorial issue and that we need to have a, a multifactorial approach. So, Vincenzo, um, I was struck by the fact that uh, the Makoka index that we use um, in patients at high risk of intubation actually has very 
almost no factors that deal with hemodynamic instability. Um, so if, if you were to speak to, you know, intensivists in training um, or people who are taking care of these patients and you had to say, you know what, this is what you need to focus on in order to monitor hemodynamic instability both before and after intubation, uh, which uh, factors would you tell them to focus on? Some have mentioned stuff like the shock index, uh, like blood pressure, heart rate, um, uh, the, the, the dose of presses. How do you go about making sure that your patient is hemodynamically uh, stable before intubating them? Well, thanks, Dominic. Well, all, uh, how most hope um, hemodynamic parameters in our postdoc multivariate analysis uh, was significantly associated with uh, with uh, uh, the uh, composite event of uh, of uh, our trial. Uh, so uh, we are working on, uh, uh, let's say, uh, hemodynamic uh, sub-analysis of our uh, database in order to identify which hemodynamic parameter more, more strongly uh, is correlated with the, the hemodynamic adverse events. Um, I, I would say that uh, uh, systolic blood pressure, uh, but also heart rate, would be uh, nice to look, but uh, we should uh, focus on the on the issue that if we look at the baseline hemodynamic parameters that we have uh, collected also for our patients, the baseline hemodynamic parameters for most patients is uh, above 100 millimeters of mercury. So um, this is uh, quite interesting to see that the, uh, at the baseline, uh, since most patients uh, had respiratory failure as the leading uh, reason for intubation, they were not already on shock, but after the procedure, they developed uh, hemodynamic instability. So probably this is uh, also an important message from our study because uh, uh, looking at the hemodynamic parameters, parameters at baseline uh, may give a false sense of uh, confidence um, and then uh, after the procedure, we have a patient that has uh, hemodynamic collapse. So probably, uh, yeah, as, as we said, this is a multifactorial uh, issue and uh, no single parameter can be predictive of, uh, of uh, adverse events. So that's pretty intriguing that uh, the prior to intubation, you wouldn't have thought that they were as sick as they were, but actually they were. So John, what factors would you think about? Uh, so I've intubated a patient and suddenly they hemodynamically unstable. What, what kind of stuff would go through your head that you need to be thinking of, oh my gosh, why did this patient decompensate uh, so quickly? And what approach would you use? So I, I think, uh, you know, what this does for me is it tells me that even a patient who uh, appears reasonably stable prior to intubation is at high risk uh, of becoming unstable in, in the peri-intubation period. And so we tend to focus a lot, I think, you know, uh, on, uh, you know, what, what the most pre prescient problem is. So we may be focused on the difficulty of the intubation or where we are, but no matter where your patient is or what their hemodynamic status is, this data our data tells you that you've got to think about the likelihood of shock post. So I would be, uh, I would be setting myself up to reduce that risk. So I would be having pressors, uh, maybe uh, like a, a, you know, an infusion of, of um, noradrenaline, for example, uh, either 
in progress at a low dose are absolutely right there ready to start. Uh, and if I had the time, I would be putting an arterial line at these patients. So I think it, it will, my dominant, it, it has changed, I think, what my dominant concern is coming into these scenarios now, in that I'm much more concerned about the cardiovascular. Oh, definitely. Um, so, uh, Vincent, I want to turn to um, what uh, the key limitations of your study were. Um, you mentioned them in your uh, limitation section. So, for the benefit of our audience, uh, what were the key limitations of your study? Yes, thank you, Dominique. Well, the key, key, the key limitations are probably those typical of uh, observational studies. So, uh, we, we cannot exclude the presence of uh, potential uh, uh, unmeasured confounders, as we already discussed, uh, and the possibility that despite adjustment for disease severity, it may be possible that residual confounders influence the uh, this high incidence of severity of adverse events in some group of patients. Uh, so probably this is uh, this is uh, the, the the most significant uh, limitation, but this is uh, inherent to the to the study design. And uh, probably another limitation may be considered also the the lack of uh, of a longer follow up uh, to assess whether these uh, complications have a long term consequence of uh, uh, on patients' outcomes. So for example. On, uh, on the development of brain injuries or something like this. So, but the, 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 our aim was to, to, to study primarily uh, the immediate per intubation event. So, probably this complication that has been reported, for example, in other trials such as the National Audit Project in, uh, in the UK, uh, are, uh, must be further investigated. Yeah, I think you mentioned important uh, limitations, convenient sampling and residual confounding. John, uh, this study was done before COVID, um, and obviously the questions can be raised, what uh, implications do they have for those uh, in the COVID era? Um, I would imagine that these findings are generalizable to the COVID setting. Uh, yes, Dominic, I would agree. Uh, you know, we we are intubating larger numbers of patients now, and then and, 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 some respects, probably even more resource constrained. Uh, you know, for example, our, our finding around capnography, you know, where we show that only about 25% of uh, intubations have capnography as their uh, method to confirm intubation. I, I, I would imagine this is even more stretched now in the setting of, of the COVID pandemic. So we may be even seeing more complications. I certainly think this data is generalizable to that population. Gotcha. So let's look to the future now. Um, Vincenzo and John, you both mentioned that future studies are in the work based on your work. I think your, uh, the study that you conducted sets the stage for different avenues of research. Um, I'll start with John first and then Vincenzo. John, what studies should we be looking at to both uh, prevent, mitigate, and treat uh, cardiovascular instability in those uh, who undergo intubation? So uh, I think that there, there are a number that we can do. Uh, like a, one of the things we're doing right now, as, as Vincenzo has mentioned, is we are looking at our data set to uh, dig more deeply now into the adverse hemodynamic uh, effects that we've seen. And we want to look at practice variations, right? So we talked earlier on about the propofol versus uh, ketamine, for example. So we want to look at these, see if there are clues in the data you know, uh, around practices and, and the, the differences in incidence of these events, and then frame uh, clinical questions around these. So, you know, identifying the optimal uh, 
induction agent, for example, identifying strategies prior to uh, uh, the intubation that would reduce the risk. So does the, does the pre-intubation use of a pressor, for example, would that would that reduce the risk? And if and if they do reduce the risk, does that then translate? into a better outcome for our patients. Because one of the things we did find was that patients who had these events went on to have poorer overall outcomes, which again was one of the, the very concerning findings that we had. So you know, can we do things around the peri-intubation period in terms of vasopressors or drugs or intubation techniques uh, that w- will improve the outcome for our patients? Vincenzo, your comments? Yes. Well, um, this is a, an observational study, so we don't expect that uh, this study may alter clinical practice, but for sure may have an important influence, at least for for future research. And uh, this study uh, was, uh, let's say, uh, a snapshot of the real life, uh, but now we want to, to provide clinicians and more uh, practical information on uh, on uh, predictive factors or uh, on uh, uh, or we want also to identify uh, predictive variables that may be optimized prior to uh, to the procedure in order to make uh, uh, the intubation a safer procedure so yes uh, as john has said we already we are already working on many analysis from uh, our database but for sure we we should also work on uh, on trials that may, for example, compare the use of uh, of the early start of vasopressors in uh, in patients uh, under in critically patients undergoing intubation, in order to mitigate the effects of uh, of the procedure on um, on uh, on adverse events. I think that's really important. John, um, the editorial that was given by Dr. Gershengorn mentioned the importance of variability in clinical practice, and uh, certain factors were mentioned of both appropriate variability and inappropriate variability, Um, appropriate being that uh, physicians feel that this patient uh, does not meet the criteria for certain guidelines and decide to institute uh, measures which are more appropriate. But there's also, from your data, some indication that um, people deviate from uh, standard practice uh, and there's no good reason for it. For example, uh, in the airway management protocol uh, data that you showed, um, 50% of people, uh, 50% of studies had a protocol in place, um, but then 15% of them had it in place and didn't use it. What is explaining uh, this so-called non-compliance uh, with, with evidence um, or choice to, uh, to go away from uh, the standard procedure? It's a good question, Dominique, and uh, it's a difficult one to answer. Uh, Clinicians do vary in their practice, uh, and I think what the data shows us is that this variability is is not good in this situation, that this is a high-risk event, uh, and that you need to have procedures uh, and ways of doing things in place you need to have the best equipment that you can get. Uh, you know, the data shows very nicely that uh, you know uh, advances uh, in technology around tracheal intubation that makes intubation easier uh, is associated with less risks. Having senior doctors there uh, is uh, is important. Uh, and you know, by showing, I think how um, how frequent these adverse events are and their long term 
their association with poorer long-term outcome. Our hope is that you know, we're drawing attention to this problem to people and saying, look, you need to have these protocols and procedures in place if you want to reduce these risks. Agree. Uh, Vincenzo? Yes, uh, it is one of the the most interesting findings. So from our study, it seems to be uh, a kind of discrepancy between uh, randomized trial and uh, clinical uh, life and real life. Uh, other, for example, findings um, that we already talked about the, the capnography use and the underuse of capnography, but also um, the, the methods of pre-oxygenation for example, lots of trials investigated the use of positive pressure ventilation in uh, uh, severely epoxic patients, but we, from our data, the clinicians prefer to use the backbone mask as the leading uh, preferred uh, methods for pre-oxygenation. Other examples are, for example, as we already talked, the use of propofol instead of uh, other agents that have been uh, recommended in order to have an, a more hemodynamically friendly profile. Uh, but also, for example, the use of video laryngoscopy, uh, which has been used in, uh, in only 17% uh, uh, of, uh, of patients. Uh, uh, these are interesting information because... Uh, uh, this is probably the first study that uh, provide data on what is uh, uh, real life, and um, and uh, probably this discrepancy is is, uh, is uh, real. And what explain is is difficult. Uh, it may be a consequence of uh, resources availability, but also probably most importantly uh, training of physicians, culture, and many other. Uh, complex uh, issues that uh, uh, it will be interested to, to investigate in future in future studies. Yeah, I think this issue of culture and physician training is interesting. So, um, here in the United States, um, ICUs are generally uh, uh, staffed by. Uh, Pulmonary critical care trained uh, the physicians, whereas my understanding in the UK it's uh, anesthesiology driven. Is this correct? And uh, what experience have you had in in that regard? Well, in the uh, finding that we have in our trial this is that uh, the the operator ha is uh, really uh, different uh, in uh, different places. Uh, the leading operator is uh, still the anesthesiologist, uh, but we have a number of uh, different specialties. And, and nice information from this kind of study is that uh, many operators around the world manage hardways. Uh, and uh, from, for example, from the multivariate analysis, uh, being a, a consultant uh, instead of being on training, or uh, being an anesthesiologist instead of having other specialties is associated with uh, with a higher rate of first pass success, and uh, first pass success is associated with the reduced risk of complications. So mm, the the operator uh, may have an important uh, factor on uh, on uh, this complication rate. John, your comment. Uh, yes, I, I think, uh, you know, tracheal intubation is sometimes thought of as a, you know, as a simple technical uh, procedure, 
right? And a, I think our data shows fairly clearly that it, it's much more than that, right? It it, it can set a patient off uh, on a on a very negative trajectory if not done well, uh, and we need to have our you know, we need to have our doctors trained really well in these procedures. Uh, they need to think about the likely complications, take steps in advance to mitigate those risks by having the right equipment, uh, the right drugs available, uh, and then execute the procedure uh, with the most senior health they have available. Right. The data shows very nicely, I think, that, you know, senior doctors performing these procedures uh, do them quicker with higher success rates, and this leads to less complications. So I think it, it speaks to the, you know, the, the, that this is a critical event in your critical care, in your stay, you know, the tracheal intubation period, and that we re- need to really focus on it. And then I want to ask you a question about uh, teasing apart. Uh, so in your study, you found that these hemodynamic instabilities occurred, but it was difficult to tease out, you know, what precipitated the event. And as you know, you could have a critically ill patient who's got underlying renal disease, um, they're obese, so they may have an elevated uh, CO2, and they may have a mixed uh, uh, metabolic respiratory acidosis. You go ahead and intubate them, you paralyze them, they stop breathing, they end up dropping their pH, um, and then they get put on a ventilator setting that's inappropriate. Maybe they're breathing 25 breaths a minute, and uh, the ventilator has been set to 12. How are you going to tease this out to figure out, you know, what uh, is the best, uh, what is the prime reason for this patient undergoing this hemodynamic instability? And the other question is, maybe it's impossible to tease it out. Do you just institute a protocolized approach? How do you get to the bottom of this to actually deal with the underlying issue? John? Uh, so, they're great questions, and I think we're going to spend a lot of time trying to figure those out, right? Like, there, there, are, there are some, uh, you know, in a large data set like we have, uh, we we will see significant differences in practice. Now we talked earlier on about how that's a bad thing, and and and, but it also leads, you know, gives us the potential to uh, contrast different approaches, right? So we hope to identify, you know, associations within the data uh, that we can then test, right? So at the end of the day, we can't tell you very much about cause and effect, but we can that there are clues in the data that allow us to then uh, test these things specifically. So I, I think that's how we will approach this. You know, we, we're not going to try to explain each thing, but we will we will look at sort of the major signals and say, yes, we should test, for example, uh, you know, a fluid bolus versus uh, a vasopressor in a, in, a, in an unstable patient prior to intubation, right? So we should look at that. We should look at different induction agents and so forth and try to then provide the evidence that allows people then to to sort of modify their practice and draw up uh, their own uh, procedures for this uh, so they can do it in the safest way possible. Yeah, uh, Vincenzo? Yes, I absolutely agree with John. Uh, we, we cannot make a strong conclusion on cause and effect, but um, we have, uh, let's say, the ground to guide uh, future research. So we have uh, different signals. Uh, we can make definitive conclusion from uh, this observational study, but for sure we have uh, uh, signals that may be further investigated in uh, in, uh, in more specific um, and uh, trials or in randomized trials, for example, uh, looking at uh, different interventions. So, uh, for sure, this is a, this is an important 
important study because uh, it provides uh, real-life data, but um, the, 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 this information are intriguing in, uh, in, in, uh, in a hypothesis generating, but uh, for sure, uh, in order to look at effective intervention, we should uh, uh, consider the development of uh, randomized trial that may be influenced by our data, but um, the definitive the definitive questions the answer to to our question uh, probably will not be answered by by our trial. Definitely, yeah, we definitely can't attribute the cause and effect. So, um, both of you have been very gracious with your time, and uh, we're drawing to the end of this podcast. Uh, I want to give each of you an opportunity to um, just discuss anything that we haven't covered in the podcast that you feel our audience definitely should know, um, as well as any concluding remarks. Um, I'll start with John, and uh, Vincenzo can uh, finish it up for us. John? Uh, thank you, uh, Dominique, and, and thank you for inviting us to do this podcast. Uh, we're, we're delighted to, to participate. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the key finding or, you know, what, what we hope to achieve from this study is to draw attention to the, the very high rate of adverse events, peri-intubation, uh, and the fact that this has, a, it is associated with worse outcomes for our patients. So we hope to highlight this as a key event, you know, in the patient's ICU stay. Uh, and to, from that then, to, to initiate a series of studies that will sort of further tease out these events and then test some of these uh, alternative strategies to minimize these risks, particularly around hemodynamic uh, compromise in these patients. Thank you, John. Uh, Vincenzo? Yes, thank you also from me for the invitation to this podcast. And probably, yes, what this study remarks is that we uh, probably focused on uh, difficult anatomy in order to uh, but probably what we should focus on is on uh, uh, physiology. And um, also in guidelines, we, ha we have a lot of space on, uh, on strategies in order to overcome anatomical difficulties. Uh, and uh, we are probably now uh, well prepared to uh, deal with the difficulty of uh, anatomies because from, uh, from our data, for example, we have... Uh, uh, and ninety percent of uh, first pass success, and uh, in only four cases we don't we have a, a real difficult anatomy uh, leading to um, uh, front of neck access uh, to the airways. Uh, but instead we have a huge amount of morbidity uh, and probably also on uh, on mortality that may be uh, the consequence of uh, altered physiology. So probably the the, the key uh, message from our study is, is that, as also John said, that we the physiology optimization and the intervention to optimize physiology uh, are the the key uh, research question for the future. Yeah, I, I think you as the in-tube study investigators have really highlighted what an important topic it is, how common it is in the ICUs and emergency settings, and how high risk it is. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, we discussed uh, the JAMA March 2021 paper uh, entitled Intubation Practices and Adverse Peri-Intubation Events in Critically Ill Patients from 29 Countries. 
I definitely encourage you to read it, and uh, we look forward to uh, your work, uh, John and Vincenzo, um, to uh, try to unravel some of these questions uh, that, that you guys have posed. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Dominic. Thank you. A big thank you to Drs. Rosado and Laffey, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.